Good morning. Yeah, there we go. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you again for your mercy, for your goodness, for your kindness to us as a church. We pray that you would meet the many needs that are represented among us today. We pray for Jennifer's Aunt Carol, that you would heal her and that you would be working with the doctors, working in, uh, with her faith, whatever needs to happen in that situation, Father, I pray that you would be working there, that you would give that family and give the Parkers peace and comfort during this time. We pray for all of the ladies that are pregnant, all the babies, that you would protect them in their mother's wombs and help them to have safe deliveries. Thank you for your gift of children to us. Pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I was in sixth grade, I had something happen that I think is probably something a lot of people in here can relate to on some level or another, which is, I got saved, sort of. I was already a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home. I had certainly said the sinner's prayer. I think I actually was already saved. But what happened was my best friend, Lance Easley, in sixth grade, invited me to go to a New Song concert. I don't know if anybody remembers New Song. Yeah, I think they were like an okay Christian band from the time. They had Winter Jam was their thing that would come every year. This may have been a Winter Jam, I don't remember. But they're, they're also responsible for inflicting upon the world the Christmas shoes, if anybody knows that. Wonderful song. So, new song. Anyway, I, w I went to this new song concert, and they had an altar call at the end of the concert. And I don't remember the concert being anything particularly special, but I do remember the guy just saying, you know, come on up if you want to live a life actually connected to the power of Jesus and all this kind of stuff. And I got swept up in it, and I walked forward, and there was a guy, you know, standing at the stage, different people that would pray with you, and someone prayed with me. And I just went home absolutely buzzing, like so excited about the power of what Jesus had done in my life, the power of the Spirit in my life. And everything that had come before that point felt mundane and small, like I'd been so sinful, I hadn't taken my faith seriously, but now, now I was going to take it seriously. I was going to not sin anymore. I mean, this, this is really kind of what I was thinking, and, and don't hear what I'm not saying. I think sometimes you can have these mountaintop experiences, and they can be very good and very valid, and so I'm not making fun of the whole genre of I went somewhere and a thing happened and I felt really good. I think that God can work that way. And he certainly has worked that way in my life. But this time, I drove home. I was buzzing. I was excited. Sinless life. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, power. I feel like different than I ever have before. And I get home and I go to bed and I'm still like just so excited. And then that's, that's Friday night. Saturday morning... I wake up, I'm still excited. You know, it's like one of those things like Christmas Day where you're kind of drifting out of sleep and then you remember, oh, I got saved yesterday. Everything's different. And then my brothers came in the room and they were kind of annoying. And then my parents wanted me to do something and I didn't want to do it. And then life happened all that Saturday. And then life happened all that Sunday. And my 
experience of victory and of power and of being connected to the things of God just crumbled. And, and so much so that I'd pretty much forgotten it had happened by the end of the weekend. And I remember going to school on Monday and Mrs. Cornwell happened to have been at the concert. And Mrs. Cornwell had seen me walk forward and get saved. And she called me out in the class. She was like, at the beginning of school, you know, as school started, she was like, now, Nathan, something very exciting happened to you this weekend, didn't it? And I couldn't remember what the exciting thing was. <laughs> and I was like, uh, I went to Taco Bell? And she was like, no, you got saved. And I was like, oh, yeah, 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 I got saved. That's right. Do you ever wonder what the Christian life is really supposed to look like? Especially as regards our sin and our sanctification. Like, how are we supposed to feel? Are we supposed to be connected to that power? If, if I'm in Jesus, what kind of change and victory can I actually expect to see? And maybe the flip, dark flip side of that question, if I don't see that change in victory, then am I in Jesus? The scriptures don't always make it easy on us. Some of them, you read them and it's like the Christian life is a struggle. The Christian life is difficult. One step forward, two step backs. You, you got to be working out your, your stuff, right? There, there's, there's, that, there's that kind of scripture. But then there's some scriptures that make it sound like if we still have any sin at all, we may not even be in Jesus. Verses like 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Or again, 1 John 5, 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. It kind of sounds like, in some parts of the Bible at least, when you're a Christian, you don't sin. You don't have certain struggles that you had before you were a Christian. Or at the very least, your life is marked by a profound, deep break with those things. There is a big difference between the before and the after. And for me, at least, as I look over the course of my life, that's a scary thing. Because I have real sins. I get mad at my wife and my kids. I am impatient. I am proud. I am petty. I am vengeful. You name it, right? Maybe some of you feel like that. Maybe some of you have real sins. Maybe some of you have deep reoccurring sins. Maybe some of you have addictions or abuse from your past or things that got their tendrils in you deep and they're hard to deal with. And you keep seeing the same patterns year after year after year and you have to sort of think like, well, when I look at a verse like the one that Nathan just read, does that mean I'm not born of God? We talked a lot about this. We have been talking a lot about this as Pastor Jake has taken us through Romans. You remember Romans 7, where Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am, as he sees the sin in him. The tension of our sinfulness is one that we all have to deal with. And, and I think there's maybe three bad ways that people deal with the fact that they don't see the victory in their life that maybe they expected to. 
and when they read verses like the one I just read. Number one, they can be really morbidly miserable and introspective about it. You know, they see their own sin and they think, I must not be a Christian. Woe is me. I yelled at my wife yet again. I must not be saved. Oh, well. Number two, so you can be morbidly miserable about it. Number two, you can just pretend that you don't have any sin, that there is no tension, that all the victory happened up front. The second you accepted Jesus into your life, you were victorious. I've actually, I actually knew a guy who, and maybe some of you have known people, maybe some of you are people, this guy believed this explicitly, so much so that if you tried to call him out for something, if you tried to rebuke him, if you're like, hey, George, you really hurt my feelings with that thing that you said, he'd be like, well, we know it's not a sin. It's not a sin because we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. And I've been born of God. And this is a literal conversation. I'm not really exaggerating. I've been born of God, so you can't call me on anything. You can't rebuke, like, my life is where it's supposed to be. And George was not a pleasant person to be around. So we can get morbidly miserable and introspective. We can get self-righteous in that way, like we just assume we are righteous. Or we can get legalistic and self-righteous, you know. We, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, so I have to prove to myself that that's me. I have to prove to everyone else that that's me, so hey, look at me, I, I, I do this thing and I serve here and I'm following these rules and I, my dress goes all the way past my ankles. She who has been born of God keeps her unholy ankles covered. But okay, we know that those three, three things aren't right. God is not calling us to morbid introspection. He's not calling us to self-righteously pretending like we don't have any sin. And he's not calling us to a pharisaical kind of legalism, that, uh, salvation through following rules. So what is God calling to us, calling us to? If I'm in Jesus, what kind of change and victory, especially change and victory over sin, can I expect to see? Well, let me read a passage that actually used to really confuse me from a book that, of the Bible that has really confused me over the years, the book that contains those two other verses that I mentioned, contains a lot of verses like this. So I want to read the, the first chapter of 1 John, the epistle of John. And so if you have a Bible, 1 John 1, we'll read all 10 verses, starting with verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now let's just pause right there, because 
John, this is the apostle John, one of Jesus's three most close companions, along with James and Peter. He's called the disciple that Jesus loved. And so John, I think he's a very heavenly-minded fellow. He has an elevated way of talking. and, And there's a lot of like commas and phrases and grammar and stuff that doesn't happen all the time in the Bible. Like he just has a particular way of expressing himself that's a little bit complex that we have to decipher a little bit. And so what we just read sounds a little complicated, but, but all he's really saying is Jesus came, I saw him, I hung out with him, I heard him, I was part of a group of people that was with him, you know, he was the life that was manifested, and I want you to have fellowship with Jesus and with the Father. I want you to have the joy of having that fellowship. And so having been with Jesus, I want to tell you like the one thing, the one important thing. Like this is, this is my TED Talk. This is my The Moth podcast. This is like if I'm going on CNN or going on Joe Rogan, I'm going to tell him like the one thing. This is the one thing that you need to know. And then he proceeds to tell the one thing beginning in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So if I'm in Jesus, what kind of victory, what kind of change can I expect to see? A scripture like this, you'd be forgiven for thinking that it's self-contradictory. It's not, and maybe you don't think that. I hope you don't think that. But there's two different things that almost feel like they're in opposition to each other, right? On the one hand, God is light. In God, there is no darkness whatsoever. If we walk in darkness, we cannot have fellowship with him. We may not be Christians, On the other hand, if we say we have not sinned, we're liars. We definitely sin. So how do you kind of put those two things together? Well, let's go through it from verse 5 again. So verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So I think we're all on board like that with that, right? God is perfectly holy. There is no sin in God. There is nothing. You heard Pastor Ben pray today in his prayer of confession, like, God, you don't say the things that we say. You don't do the things we do. You are perfectly holy. For some reason, I was reading, I have no idea why, the joys of the internet. I was reading about sunspots the other day. So the sun, of all the things that we could choose as a metaphor for God's holiness, the sun is probably the best, right? It's a giant galactic furnace that 
burns completely bright. If anything gets close, if anything even looks at it, it's going to get destroyed. Like it is perfect in its bright, shining power and light. And yet the sun has parts of the sun that are less sunny than other parts of the sun. There are, there are dark spots on the sun. They, they call them sunspots. I don't know why they call the dark spots on the sun sunspots. It's like calling pimples skin spots or something. But there's parts of the sun that are cooler than other parts of the sun. So it turns out the sun is not a good metaphor because God's holiness has nothing like that. God's holiness is perfect. There is no one little part of it over here that has any imperfection. So God is perfectly holy. He is perfectly good. He is perfectly righteous. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Okay, so I think we're still all on board with that. God is perfectly holy. He's perfectly righteous. And if we say that we're in him, that we're one of his children, but we are unholy, we must be lying. I mean, you know, I asked the question, if I'm in Jesus, what kind of change and victory over sin can I expect to see? Well, one answer is the kind that's real. I remember working for not the current youth group that the Albersons and Shooties have the privilege of serving in, but a different youth group. There was a girl that was walking in obvious rebellion. I don't remember if it was fornication or what exactly it was, but she was bad news. She hated being at youth group. She hated her parents. She was living a very wicked life. And we reached out to her in different ways. And eventually, a group of us, you know, the youth group leaders, Meredith, myself, uh, some, some older pastors, some people, her parents, I don't know who all was there, but we did kind of an intervention. And we were sitting there with her. And I remember the oldest pastor there said, well, Sarah, are you a Christian? And she said, yes, yes, I am a Christian. And he said, well, have you been doing X and Y and what about this thing that happened? And what about this and what about this? And she said, well, that's all true. I've done whatever it was. And he said, well, are you a Christian? And she said, yes. And he said, then act like one. And he was, this was not Pastor Bailey, if you know Pastor Bailey. This was a different pastor, not somebody you'd expect that from at all. But he loved this girl and he really wanted to get through to her and he wanted to get through to her with the message that, hey, if your life doesn't at all reflect what you're claiming about yourself, there might be a problem. There might be a disconnect. If you say you're this kind of thing and then you have none of the attributes of this kind of thing, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. So, obvious application of this scripture for all of us today is if your life has no fruit, you do need to think carefully about whether you're a Christian. You do need to ask hard questions of yourself. If you don't care about the things of God, if you don't care about being righteous, if there's nothing in you that is different than it was before, that might be a problem. Now, that is 100% true. I don't want to lose sight of that, but let's keep reading. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. 
Let me just read that again, because this part really used to confuse me, and maybe everybody here is smarter than I am, but I was so confused by this. So, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. Now, I, I assumed that walking in the light meant walking perfectly without sin. And so that made this passage very confusing, because then it sounds like it's kind of saying, if you walk without sin, you're a Christian, and therefore God will forgive your sin. Which makes no sense. It's like a weird, circular, contradictory kind of thing, right? Like, if you live in Indiana and not Kentucky, then that proves you're a Hoosier, and we forgive you for living in Kentucky. Which we do, by the way. It felt like a loop, like it doubled back on each other. And it really freaked me out regarding what we're talking about. You know, ah, if I'm in Jesus, what kind of change and victory over sin can I expect to see? What does this mean? Well, okay, whatever the passage means, it doesn't mean we become Christians and then we never have another incident of sin in our lives. Because if that was true, then the Bible doesn't make sense. The rest of the passage doesn't make sense. Life doesn't make sense. Uh, verse 8 doesn't make sense. Verse 8, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So, okay, how do we, how do we put all this together? It, it, let me just read verse 6 and 7 again so we can really get this fixed in our minds. Verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What does it mean to walk in the scripture? It's one of those words you might just go past, but it occurs all the time. Let me give you some examples from some random scriptures. So Deuteronomy 8.6. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Psalm 1.1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Micah 6.8 He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So what does it mean to walk? To walk means to point yourself in a direction. To strive to move towards something, to put yourself in service of something. When we ask, like, what is a person walking in, scripturally, what we're asking is, what are you building your life around? What is your purpose? What is the north star that you sail your ship towards? To walk in darkness is to be living in service of evil, to be striving after it, oriented towards it. It means your north star is sin, yourself, your evil desires. To walk in the light is to strive after, to be oriented towards, to be moving in the direction of God and the things of God. So the question here is, what is your big picture orientation? What are you walking toward? The question is not, do you ever stumble? So, you know, to answer our big question, if I'm in Jesus, what kind of change and victory over sin can I expect to see? The answer is, you can expect to see the direction of your life 
change fundamentally. Fundamentally. You're still going to have stuff to work on, obviously. It's like the compass changes, the star that you're navigating towards changes. But it doesn't mean you might not hit some rapids or get attacked by killer whales or something like that. That doesn't change. That's not so complicated, right? So, so why does a passage like this or other passages like this, why, why, why do they feel confusing? Why do we get dismayed and start to think, uh, am I even a Christian? Why do some of us do that at least? Well, I, I think there's a dynamic that happens. It's very similar to a dynamic that happens in my lovely marriage to my lovely wife, Meredith, where Meredith will say to me something like, hey, Nathan, maybe you could spend some more time with the kids and I this weekend. Because I'm insecure, because I have a guilty conscience about how much time I do spend with my family, because I'm prone to depression. What do I hear when she says that? What I hear is, you don't ever spend enough time with the kids and me. Now, she didn't actually say that, probably. <laughs> she may not have meant that. For the purposes of our story, at least, she didn't mean that. She may have only meant it as a small, corrective statement. Like, hey, it'd be nice to spend a little more time this weekend. But what I hear is a giant existential dilemma. A statement about um, my entire life. And I'm tempted to have the same bad reactions to it that we described earlier. Morbid introspection that leads to despair. I don't spend enough time with my family and I never will. So why bother? Defensive self-righteousness. Actually, I spend plenty of time with you, Meredith. I already do everything that I can. I'm a wonderful husband and father. And I'll ask you not to criticize my decisions, or legalism. I'm gonna wake up at 6.30 on Saturday. I'm gonna make waffles with Theo. We're gonna put strawberries on them. We're gonna laugh. We're gonna sing. I'm gonna be the greatest dad of all time because that's the way to solve this problem. Be the greatest father in the world. Which, you know, hooray if I can pull that off, but. <laughs> uh, I'm probably gonna burn out pretty quickly. Meredith's goal in our little scenario was to stir me up, to do the right thing, to spend a little bit more time with my kids. But I hear her gentle exhortation to strive forward as though it's a condemnation of everything I've ever done or will do. But is that my relationship with Meredith? Does she look down on me like that? Does she think of me that way? Is that, in fact, where we're at? as a couple. By God's grace, no. I think it can be tempting to do the same sort of dynamic with the Bible, with passages like 1 John. What John is saying to us here, what the Apostle John is saying is like, hey, if you love Jesus, walk in righteousness, walk in light. That's what it's going to look like. And we're like, yeah, but I don't do that. So I must not love Jesus. And John's like, yeah, but I'm telling you to do it. I'm prescribing it. You can do it now, but I don't know if it's the kind of thing I would do. Yeah, but that's why I'm telling you, like, you could just, you could do it. Like, 
The point wasn't to get all in your head. The, the, the point was to do it. Yeah, but I'm not doing it right now. Yeah, that's why I'm reminding you to do it. But I don't know if it's the kind of thing I would do. It will be if you do it. I mean, it would be like if you went to the doctor and the doctor was like, I don't want you to die. You got a horrible condition. You're going to die. But if you take this pill, you'll live. Well, I don't know if, I mean, I haven't taken the pill before, so that must mean I want to die. No, I don't want you to die, so here's the pill. You can take it, put it in your mouth, drink some water. You'll have taken it. But am I the kind of person who would take the pill? I don't know. You will be if you take the pill! Just take the pill! In other words, God doesn't call us to morbid introspection, to self-righteousness, to legalism. God calls us to simple, humble faith and then doing the work of obeying Jesus. So if you're the kind of person who wonders all the time, is my life what it should be? Do I really love Jesus? Am I walking in the light or in the darkness? I really want to walk in the light, but I don't know if I can. I don't know if I do. Those are questions sometimes worth asking. The Apostle John is stirring us up to ask those questions, but we may not get stuck there forever. At the end of the day, we must claim the promises of God. God, if you are in Christ, God loves you. Jesus died for you. There's no such thing as someone who really, 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 really wants to walk in the light and isn't allowed, just can't do it. If God's given you the true desire to walk in the light, then he has given you the power. There are people who don't have the desire and therefore don't have the power. If you're one of those, you need to repent. And then there are people like the kind I think I'm describing who are hurting and they don't think they have the power. And so they assume I must not have the desire, I must not have anything. But Jesus said it takes the faith of a mustard seed. You can be weak, you can be far behind. You can be deformed and broken. And all you have to do is come to him, take the first step, and then another one, and then another one. Now, now let me say again, if I wasn't clear before, we do need to examine ourselves. We do need to do a fruit check. We need to take the warnings of God about our personal holiness seriously. And if we're going to take steps to obey God, to walk in the light, well, it helps to know what our sins are and what steps we should be taking, right? Like, I'm not calling us to just turn our brains off and say, I have faith. But if you're the kind of person who's just stuck, wondering, like, somebody who's standing outside of the party, you know, saying, I don't know if I was actually invited. I don't know if I can actually go in. You can spend the rest of your life wondering, or you can walk through the open door that's right in front of you. You know what I mean? It'd be one thing if you're wondering, oh, should I go into the party? And there's a shut door in front of you. But many of us make our own shut doors. If you're the kind of person wondering, like, do I actually know how to walk? Can I walk? Am I able to just stand up and walk? I don't know, take a step. Okay, but what about our sin? Well, I'm glad you asked, because Russell John anticipated that in verse 9. 
one that you've heard many, many times in our confession of sins and other places. Famous verse. So, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you're tempted to despair over your sin, the answer is get to work fighting it, doing the work, taking steps towards the light, into the light, and confess your sins to God. One of the things that I think is so cool about that verse that you maybe just kind of go over without thinking about is it says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I always think of God's justice as my enemy. Like God's justice is out to get me. God's justice is why I'm going to go to hell. But thankfully, through Christ's sacrifice and God's mercy, I'm okay. But ugh, i got to stay away from that justice. But here's the thing about God's justice. Christ paid the penalty for our sin. It would be unjust. It would be against God's perfect character for God to make us pay it too. That would be spitting in the face of what Jesus did. God's justice is our best friend because God's justice demands that God forgive our sins. I think some of us have an attitude. I think sometimes I have an attitude when I think of the forgiveness of God like a kid, you know, going to his dad like, I punched my sister. I know I deserve a spanking. But uh, for some reason, you're giving me candy instead. But that's not the right analogy. It's like the whole sister punching thing. That's been wiped away. The penalty has been paid, right? It would be unjust for you to get the punishment. All that's left for you is the candy. So this week, let's take practical steps to walk in the light and let's confess our sins. Let's confess them to God. I think when I pray, like my personal devotions, confession is the number one thing that I forget to do. Like the number one thing, obviously, that I remember to do is pray for things that I want. Dear Father, please help me with this or that. And then I remember, and then I'm like, oh, I should not be selfish. So I pray for other people, you know, please help Billy Joe with this or that. And then I'm like, oh, it shouldn't just be requests. And so I do some thanks and some praise because you got to get those in. But man, it is at the very, for me personally at least, maybe you're a little different, but for me personally, it is the last thing that my brain goes to to confess my sins to God. To just say, God, dear Father, I did this this week. I treated my family this way. I was proud here. And it's so good to confess our sins to God. So this week, let's confess our sins. Let's not forget. Let's do it every day. Let's be thorough. Let's be real. Let's mourn our sins. But let's mourn them with confidence. Like, let's not try to pay for our sins through our own works, whether it's by being self-righteous or by being a sad sack or by being whatever. Um, we are cleansed of all unrighteousness. Christ paid for our sins. They are gone. You had cancer. Now you are free. Your bones were broken. You were paralyzed. Now you can run and jump and shout for joy. You have to live like that. Live as someone who is cleansed 
fundamentally. So in the places where you don't act like it, act like it. Take practical steps to change one day at a time. And in the places where you sin, confess. Confess to God. See them wiped away and find freedom and joy. Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray that you would help us to walk as children of light, to walk in your light, to walk in your truth this week. I pray that for those of us who have little faith, who are tempted to despair, that you would give us hope. And for those of us that have false confidence, I pray that you would take that away. But I pray that we would be able to have real confidence in you, in the good things that you have done. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for sending your son to pay the penalty for our sins. Thank you for your justice, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.